to the I Am Podcast, where we change mindsets and lives through other people's stories and through the implementation of tools and I Am affirmations into our lives weekly. Join us every Sunday on our journey to change our lives. After listening, your life will never be the same. It was a well-thought-out plot masterminded by John Muhammad to wreak havoc. Six flames a day. Please, we have a lady that's been shot. We need an at the corner of Walls and Connecticut. He wanted people in terror. He wanted people talking about this. He wanted people worried. He wanted to disturb the entire area. But their deadly activities began long before the duo reached D.C. Malvo says there were some 40 other shootings across the country and that John Muhammad carefully trained him to be a killer. He was trained to be a crime. And then he would watch the crime and then evaluate me after it was finished. And he worked on the next time what was wrong, what I need to change emotionally, in my approach, in my tactics. He was approaching it like this is how you make a better killing. Yeah. Tragedy. That's what we'll be discussing today. One of the most horrific crimes ever committed in the United States. I had the opportunity to discuss with someone who has experienced and lived through this horrific tragedy since early before the actual killings. This story is has so much wrapped into it that I'm going to break it down into two sessions. We'll have Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. This week, you'll hear the beginning before the actual killings begin and who John Muhammad and his family was. And then next week, you'll hear about what brought on these series of killings. I'm here today with Miss Isa Farrington Nichols. She's a woman of God, beloved mother and grandmother, a celebrity speaker, an activist, a trainer, founder and CEO of Jaira Shalom, which in Hebrew means provision and peace. She's been a guest on popular TV shows such as Larry King, Fox and Friends, own Discovery Channel, BET, Lifetime, and A&E. And she's the author of a couple of books, which her most famous is Genesis, The Bullet Was Meant For Me, The Untold Story of the D.C. Sniper. How are you today, Ms. Nichols? I am just great. Feeling just wonderful. How are you? I am well. Thank you for asking we're going to ensure that we uplift the listeners today. Tell the listeners a little bit about you and your story. Well, Genesis, the bullet was meant for me, is a nonfiction account, and it's a true story of my life and the very tragic events that led to the murder of my niece, Kenya Cook, in my Tacoma home in Tacoma, Washington. It's a true story of my life and the relationship that I had with the convicted D.C. sniper murderer, John Allen Muhammad. It's a true story of uh, my friendship with uh, his ex-wife, Mildred Muhammad, and her family, the whole entire family. 
So the book is a it's a stimulus to a road of self discovery for me. A very traumatic and very dark season in my life, and it was not the intention of my book to like judge or condemn or ridicule anyone in any way. But it is an account of the first murder that precipitated the murders of the East Coast murders known as the D.C. sniper shootings, which as of today. The D.C. sniper shooting has been attributed to 26 murders. The murder that occurred in my home of my niece, Kenya Cook, was the first D.C. sniper killing. Well, I should say was the first shooting by John Muhammad and Lee Boy Malvo before he got to the Eastern Showboard. You had a relationship with Mr. Muhammad and his wife before all of this. Yes. The story... Our relationship began, uh, they were clients of mine. I had a bookkeeping and accounting and business consulting business for probably about four or five years in the community. And Mrs. Muhammad, uh, John's wife, who was driving by my office, saw the advertisement on my window and pulled over and walked into my office one day. And that's where the relationship began. She looked and literally looked at me and said, I need all of your services. So I invited her to sit down and we talked and she became a client that day. The next day she brought her husband in. And one of the things that they both said when they walked in the door was, you're a sister. I said, yes, I am. They were Islamic faith. They were Nation of Islam members. And so they looked forward to doing business with fellow African-American. Actually, I was the only practicing professional African-American in my field in the town at the time. So they were very pleased to have found somebody who was competent and relative to their needs. That's how we met. And then, of course you kind of did their bookkeeping and accounting. Yes, they had a wonderful business, uh, Express Car Truck Mechanic. John was a mechanic in the military. He was stationed at Fort Lewis, and uh, he worked in the motor pool. And when he was discharged out of the Army, him and his wife started a mobile car repair service. At first, they were working from home, they lived in a house in town, and they were fixing, repairing cars in the driveway. Well, the word kind of got out, and the impact on the neighborhood and the neighbors, they ended up moving their business. They had to find a location, mm-hmm. and they did. So they were growing, and they were doing repairs for friends and families and so forth. When they walked through my office, they had just branched out and launched their business at a facility to where that they could uh, service more clients. One of the things that they wanted to do as a married couple was have a business and leave a legacy for their three children. They had a son, uh, John Jr., who was the oldest, and then they had two daughters, Saliba and Selena. And so they had three children, and it was their goal to be self-employed, leave a legacy for their children, leave the business, if you will. Very achievable goals. Well, a legacy and an impact, just given this D.C. sniper being one of the biggest mass murders, actually followed murders by the country to date. 
Exactly. The name of my book is Genesis, and Genesis means in the beginning. And in the beginning, this was a regular family. So I'm kind of setting up uh, for you who they were before mm-hmm. they lost their way. Mm-hmm. And they were a family, a husband and a wife who had children living in our community who built a business repairing cars. And they were part of the community in terms of where they worshipped in their mosque. They were leaders in the community. John participated in a lot of community events. They were sponsors of events. They were very much an integral part of a community. So before the DC Sniper, I knew them as a husband and wife, John as a father and a husband, Mildred as a mother and a wife. And they had a wonderful family and they were thriving with the rest of the community in Tacoma. Very well respected. So I wanted to lay that foundation out first of who they were before they lost their way. And we all lose our way, and it's really great to hear that because I'm not sure many people understood the before they lost their way. And fast forward kind of to the incident uh, and how it affected your life. Um, so, from my understanding, your family was affected big time by the start of some Muhammad and Malvo's killings. Could you tell us a little bit about how it affected your family and how you survived? Yeah, I, I'd like to approach that. Uh, I'm going to fast forward to how did this happen? Mm-hmm. What could have caused such an atrocity in a community and in my life personally? And I know that as a family, we go through different trials, different challenges, and different different things that, that life happening to us. Well, this is no different than the Muhammad. There were some struggles within the business, and uh, personally, the Muhammad family began to experience some domestic abuse, domestic violence, the kind that nobody would know because it was behind closed doors. And so it began to affect their ability to be a thriving business. It got so bad that uh, I no longer was needed to do their bookkeeping and their services. But over time, over three years, we had become very good friends. They had came to my house for a birthday celebration. My birthday is in April, and it's also the end of the tax year. So I would always have a celebration and invite all of my clients and their families to celebrate with me as a thank you for their service and their support. And so they had pretty much came and become friends of mine. We knew each other's parents. Both Mildred and I were taking care of our elderly parents. She was taking care of her mom, who was a stroke survivor. I was taking care of my elderly father, who also was a stroke survivor. And we had developed a friendship. Well, at one particular time, we were not in communication for a while. And I stopped into... Uh, there, I was in a meeting uh, out near their home, and I hadn't seen her for a while, or the children, or John. And so I thought I'd stop in. I remembered it was her, 
your uh, Mildred's mom's birthday, Miss Green, and I said I'm going to go by there and just say hello, give her a happy birthday hug. And when I got there, Mildred was standing in the living room, and she was with her brother, who was in town briefly, and she just had a very stoic look on her face. And as I knocked on the door, she, I, we gave each other hugs. She invited me in. And of, of course, I was looking around for where was John? Where was the children? Where was Miss Olivia? And at that particular time, that was the day that she told me that her and her husband, John, were separated. And that she was waiting for him to bring the children back home to celebrate their her mother their grandmother's birthday well I said okay well I waited because I wanted to be a part of the uh, celebration she asked me told me I could stay and they should be home shortly James they never came home Wow! I stayed to her house till 10 30 that night and I finally went home and when I got home, I called her about 11, 11.30. She had gotten one phone call saying that he was out with the children. He was getting them, had purchased them some coats and was feeding them and would be home shortly. It was 11 o'clock, 11.30 or so, approximately. They never came home. So the next morning, I spoke with her and she still had not heard anything. And I told her I would be over to her house, got over to her house, and the the spirit, the look of her, on her face, the worry, it was just prevalent. Something was terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And so she began to share with me what happened within the business and what happened with the separation and her filing for divorce. So it was at that time I said, you need to call the police you need to report this to the police because this isn't right and you need to get it right away in case something is terribly wrong you need to get the police involved she did that and they came out took uh, information she had pictures of her children she had already called the school and confirmed that their dad had picked them up and what time and one of the things that we found out was because they were still married and there was not a custodial plan in place or agreement signed by them, by their attorneys, or a court-appointed child custodial plan, that he had just as much right to the children, that there was really nothing that they could do. And that was kind of a really hard look at the situation because here she was now with no rights to her kids. If he's able to just get them and not tell them and and, and have them, well, what about her rights to them? So the laws were really obscure back at that particular time. Mm -hmm. And they were, they were unfair. They were, there wasn't a lot of things that could do when you're in crisis. There's no ability to get you into family law so that you can get care and you can get an intermediary to help you as you go through your separation or divorce. Mm-hmm. So at that particular time, she was at wit's end because 
she knew something was terribly wrong and that he had her children. What happened once he took the kids? Well, he had the children for a total of 18 months. Mm. And it was for 18 months she didn't know where her children were. It had gotten to the point where John had called and was using the children to get back into her life. He wanted her to take him back or she wouldn't see her children again. And that's typical, right, with DV perps. They usually find some kind of leverage, right? Exactly, and especially for a woman. If you can't get to a woman, she had been successful at not allowing him to come back. I believe in the uh, Islamic separation divorces, you can't be together for a year and then they will grant you divorce. Mm -hmm. So she was pretty adamant and had really successfully denied him access to her physically um, so that she had made up her mind because she wanted her divorce. He also knew that too. So his whole mindset was, I'm going to get you back so that he could stop the divorce. Mm -hmm. You had that dynamic going on between the two of them. He was using the children after he had abducted them all of this time to get with her. Well, over time, it began to really be debilitating. Um, she was going from the police department to the city council. She was going all the way up to our governor, mm -hmm. I remember, trying to find support to get her children back. Um, went to the FBI because there was no proof that they were out of the country. The FBI kind of took the information, you know, but they couldn't really get involved in a way, but they took a case. They didn't really have a case. They just made note of it um, and told her, you know, there was really limits to what they would do, but they would keep an eye out. So this is what was going on. And then during this process, she began to emotionally and physically unravel. One day I got a call from her mother it was Mother's Day, and she called me and told me. And I knew that Mother's Day was going to be the Mother's Day of Mother's Day. She didn't have her children. And this is the first Mother's Day since he had abducted them. And so I had been praying the night before for her because this was going to be a Mother's Day that I didn't know how she was going to get through. So I got a call from her mom, and her mother asked me to go down to the hospital and said that Mildred had been taken there. And so I said to her mom, do you, would you like me to come pick you up and take you with me? She said, no, I need you to go. Please go. And so I said, yes, ma'am. I went with the urgency. It was Mother's Day. I talked to my husband. I told him what was going on. Mm -hmm. And usually we were going to church, so I told him I would meet them at church. So I get to the hospital, and Mildred was there. She had fainted. There was a package delivered by the post office to the door from uh, Mildred's other siblings for their mom for Mother's Day. When Mildred answered the door, she fainted. And the postman went to his vehicle, got his cell phone, and called 911. Mm -hmm. 
The ambulance showed up and took her to the hospital. She had become anemic and lost a lot of blood. She had stopped eating. And so the effect of her not seeing and being with her children was taking a toll on her physically. And so I went to the hospital and I stayed with her most of the day. And it was, it was, it was just horrific that she didn't know where her children were. And that had to affect you in some kind of way, just going through this with her. Yes, it was. Our relationship catapulted to a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. It was a matter of myself helping a friend, Mm -hmm. helping being who I was as a person helping someone who needed support. I didn't realize how isolating the situation would become. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how isolated she was in terms of a cadre of friends. Well, you being you and your relationship, is that how then you became one of uh, Muhammad's targets? Well, after about, who I would say, eight or nine months, we had pulled together about three or four um, resources. Mm-hmm. She ended up having to move out of the home. We had learned that John had really planned and calculated this move. He had contacted the landlord, the owner of the house, and told him that he was no longer going to be there and that he was taking the children and he would not be financially responsible for it Mm -hmm. so now the finances were gone and so she had to move I ended up I sat on the board of a shelter called the Phoebe house Mm -hmm. and it was an 18 month emergency shelter and transitional housing and I was able to contact the founder and executive director and get Mildred a room in the shelter Mildred remained in that shelter for about 15 months after about 15 months Mildred decides to get her divorce through a process. When you can't find your spouse, you have to advertise for a few months, 30 days notice in the newspapers and so forth. And after that, you can proceed with your divorce. Mm-hmm. Well, she had done a lot. She done gotten healthy at the shelter, was able to take some classes being a paralegal, and she started drafting up her divorce papers and custodial papers, what they call pro se, by hand, (coughs) by herself, without, Uh you know, without an attorney. And so once she got those documents signed and her divorce final and things, she went back to the East Coast. We left uh, habeas writ of corpus, which is what you have when they're looking for your children, to where anybody sees your children, anybody come in contact, the local authorities, fire department, any local authority can have the right to take the children into custody and uh, hold the children. It really was a time where she was getting empowered, if you will. Mm -hmm. She was changing. She was coming from victim standpoint to a full head-on fight for her her survival for her deliverance for her to get through this this ordeal and Mm -hmm. get her children back my whole 
thoughts and my words to her on a constant basis was, where will you be? What will you be doing when they find your children? How will you be? Will they find you ready and able to take your children back? Once they are found, that's what you need to think about mm-hmm. is where you will be. And so she would take that, and I would say that to her often, and she would take that because you had to look at how you're going to get your children back if you are not stable, if you are not there, they were in a position to receive them. Well, one day we got a call. When I say we, I was at the uh, shelter, and the Phoebe house received a call from a social worker in an area that was near the border of Canada and Washington. Her social worker was calling because John was trying to get state aid from the Department of Social Services. And when they ran the Social Security numbers through the system, they popped up and The last address was at the shelter. And so the social worker was doing her due diligence and calling to see, well, why is their case open? And that's how we found the children after 18 months. Wow. So we presented the social worker with the habeas writ, pictures of the children. They called a detective, later contacted us and told us to be patient they told the social worker to continue to talk to him and process the paperwork as if he was going to receive the benefits. Mm -hmm. And that's what she did. In the meantime, the detectives went up to where they were staying. It was in a shelter in Northern uh, part of Washington state. It was another shelter, a men's shelter. And John and the three children had been staying there. The detectives went there, talked to the executive director of the shelter and he told them where the kids were, and that they were in school, and confirmed who they were. The detectives then went to the school, talked to the administrators, and called for the children. They were not in their names. Oh. They were registered under a uh, fictitious name. But anyway, they had pictures, and it was the Muhammad children. And they had those children sent to the office, and they immediately took the children into custody. So now John finds out that his children are in custody, and they extradited those children back to Tacoma. And John, of course, drives three hours down to Tacoma. Mildred flies into town the next day. The court date is set. I get a call from Mildred asking me if I would go to the courtroom with her. Again, my friend, I said, of course. We go down there. She sees her husband, looks one look at him, and runs. The sheriff's department looks at us. She just runs behind the counter at the sheriff's department. So I go behind her, and we tell them what's going on. So they end up putting us in a room where uh, we could be until it was time for our case to be heard. We get in the courtroom. She is extremely nervous, very vulnerable, because she doesn't trust him, and all of the threats was how he was going to destroy her. Mm -hmm. So she was extremely nervous. She knew what he was capable of. She knew that he could get a weapon and 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 all of this stuff. She she there's nothing that he did 
in the D.C. sniper shootings that she knew he was capable. He wasn't capable of doing. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, she tried to warn people about who he was and how dangerous he had become. But nobody really gave any real, you know, thought to it. And But she always acted and reacted as if he was dangerous. Mm-hmm. That was very consistent. So here we are in the courtroom. The judge, make a long story short, hits the gravel, goes over the paperwork, hits the gravel, and releases the children to Mildred. Well, John finds out that he's divorced. He found that, finds out that he, she has full custody of the children and permission to take them out of the state. Mm. He finds that out in court. So therefore, when the judge releases the children, orders the children to be released to Mildred, we go to receive the children. They come down from the department and they're released to their mom. I'm standing there looking and the girls run out the door and embrace their mom. But that oldest son, which is what I told Mildred would happen, he's going to be distant. And sure enough, he was Mm -hmm. because he had most of the responsibility for the kids. He was the oldest son. So he, John manipulated him the most in terms of lying to them about their mom and that she wasn't this and she was going to do that and all the different things that you can tell a child when they're asking for their mother when they know something's wrong. Mm -hmm. So he kind of came out and she hugged him and his arms were right beside his waist. He didn't move. He was stoic and stiff. So she took them back back to the YWCA where she did her legal work at and got them some clothes because they were a mess. They mm-hmm. had not been kept and got them some clothes, got them bathed and everything. And when I went back over there to see them later on that evening, they were adjusting. She was able to show them website, and show them pictures, all the things that she had done to try to find them. And that's what changed the mindset of her children, that she didn't abandon them. Mm-hmm. And she looked for them daily. She loved them. And never a day went by that she did not try to find her kids. She was able to show them all of that. And that changed their lives. So, yes, John Muhammad, at that particular point, changed on that day. He changed. When Mildred left to take kids back on the East Coast, John went about doing whatever it was he was going to do and plotting because when he abducted the children, he had taken them to Antigua. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a very important part. That's because that's where he met Lee Malvo. Lee Boy Malvo is not John's biological son. He was a 13-year-old boy that John met while he and his three children over in Antigua. Mm-hmm. That's what John did when he abducted the, when he abducted the children. One of the things that John son said to his mother when uh, he had returned was that the day that daddy called you mom and said that we were on our way home mommy we were at the airport boarding a plane Mm. yeah so they went to Antigua and that's where they were for you know probably over a year but that's where John met Lee Boy Malvo at the age of 13 befriended this uh, Antiguan uh, boy who was pretty much raised alone by himself. Uh, his mother worked 
uh, on uh, the nearby islands, and that was very customary that um, they would go from island island to to work and so forth. And the extended family in the community kind of watched over the children. And so Lee was just a prime little boy who saw John's son at an arcade mm-hmm. one day, and they played together. And they began to become friends, and that was it. The minute that boy said hello to John Muhammad, his life was no longer the same. John ended up smuggling the young man here to the United States Mm -hmm. and got him here. And when the children were gone, solicited him to help him get the children back. And at that time, I was number one on John's list. Because in his mind, you kind of helped her find those kids and get them back. Yes. <laughs> and so he told Lee Malvo, and Lee said this in a in an interview, that John felt that I was responsible for ruining and interfering in their lives. And there you have it. Episode one of the Genesis DC Sniper Shooting. Join us next week for episode two. And remember, be an eagle, not a chicken. Be a lion, not an elephant. Have a great week, everyone.